Welcome to the Catholic Cafe, where all that the Catholic Church believes and teaches is served fresh daily. So come on in and see what's on the menu today. Now, here's your host, Deacon Jeff Drzymski. You know, time flies when you're eating pie, and that's what I'm doing here at the Catholic Cafe. Hi there, I'm Deacon Jeff, broadcasting once again from the luxurious corner booth at the Catholic Cafe. And, of course, sitting to my left is... Tom Dorian. Tom, watching that, you eating that big old hunk of pie. I appreciate that you were watching me eat this pie. You're a napkin, man. You you got a big old something something going on there with your chin. Well, I'm saving that for later when I'm getting hungry later in the show. <laughs> yes, absolutely. Okay, I didn't need that. So, Tom, we're uh, we're we've got an exciting show for our I, listeners today. I can't wait. All seven listeners out there, we're going to explain the Catholic understanding of the papacy. All right. Where did it come from? When did it start? And who was the first pope? I bet I know who it was. Give me a guess. Maybe Peter? Yeah, it was Peter. Think but, of the odds. But we're going to talk about why. Okay. Um, you know, not long ago, a well-meaning gentleman asked my wife why we Catholics thought that the Pope was part of the Godhead. I have never heard of that, by the way. Well, apparently he thought that, you know, in the name of the Father and the Son, the Holy Spirit, and Pope Benedict or something, that maybe we had a, a quadrinity instead of a trinity. I have never heard of that. That is radical. Well, I think it shows the level of misunderstanding and confusion that's out there about what the church teaches mm-hmm. and why the church teaches yep. what she teaches. Yep. And where did it come from? So that's what we're trying to arrive at today, understanding for our listeners about where we get this concept that Peter was the first pope. Mm-hmm. And not only that, but that his ministry carries on through succession. If you heard our show about apostolic succession we did with our bishop, right. we talk about the fact that through the laying on of hands, the Holy Spirit is passed from one person to the next. And this authority, this office that the Pope has is passed on to his successors, right. even today to our 265th Pope, Pope Benedict. My guess is that we find Peter's authority established somewhere in Scripture. Well, you that would be a good guess. Tom, and I'm glad you have those notes in front of you to tell you that. Oh, man, that was cold right no, there. No, he doesn't have – actually, Tom has no notes in front of him. Oh, yeah, like they're going to believe that now. <laughs> they, I think they will. I think people are very generous. Oh, yeah. So let's but let's spend some time talking about where in Scripture we find this understanding. Right. And what I want to do is recount to you some imagery that I had not too long ago when I went to visit uh, Rome. And mm-hmm. for the first time I was in Rome – and I walked into St. Peter's Basilica. Of course, everyone's familiar with the that, that edifice mm-hmm. of St. Peter's, that big square boxy looking mm-hmm. with all the statues. And then on top of that mm-hmm. is the giant dome mm-hmm. that we call a cupola, the cupola at St. Peter's. Right. And it's a very familiar image. But if you go inside St. Peter's mm-hmm. and you look up into the cupola, and they've got some big, beautiful windows there with lights streaming in. And you can see in letters that are five feet tall. Really? You see these words in Latin, tu es Petrus. And all through Matthew chapter 16, verses 18 and 19. Hmm. And those verses are quintessential Catholic verses that explain or help us to understand, give us the foundation for the papacy. Okay. And Peter being that first pope. 
So these are obviously very important scriptures. In fact, that's probably where Wait, we should start. What does it say? Well, we're going to tell you. Okay. So open up your Bibles, if you will, and we're going to go to uh, Matthew chapter 16, verse 13. We'll go back as far as 13, uh, and then we'll get to 18 and 19. But let's start back at verse 13 of Matthew chapter 16. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do men say that the Son of Man is? And they said, Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said to them, But who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. Here's verse 18. And I tell you, you are Peter. And on this rock I will build my church, and the powers of death shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. And wrapped up in those words, we'll find Peter, the papacy, and all of Peter's successors. And so it's very important to understand exactly what was going on with, with Peter being this rock. Now, you get into Petros and Petra at this point because you said that it says Petros at the top of the dome, correct? Actually, it says Petrus, which is Petrus. Latin, okay. but that comes from the Greek Petros, Okay. right? And so now we have to talk about Petros and Petra because they're a common that, objection. Right. That's a big hang-up. That's right. For a, lot of folks. a lot of folks think that, well, what Jesus was actually saying was, you are Petros, which means little rock, mm-hmm. because it's the masculine form of that word. And upon this Petra, which means big rock. It's a feminine. That's the feminine form. And, of course, that comes to us from this concept of, you know, the mother of all wars or the, the mothership, you know. And in this case, we're talking about the mother of all rocks. Right. You know, if we're using the, the feminine form and which what that entails is then this mother, this large thing gives birth to this small thing. Mm-hmm. So what Jesus then would be saying is this large thing, whether rock is was referring to Peter's faith or the church or even Christ himself, that this large rock was giving birth to this little rock, maybe mm-hmm. this pebble. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so... If you had that understanding, and if Jesus spoke in Greek, well, that might be something we'd have to look at and try to figure out. But didn't speak in Greek. That's right. Jesus' native language and the language that he spoke all through Scripture is actually in Aramaic. Right. Now, most Scripture scholars agree to this. We, we don't have any tape recordings of Jesus. I'm sure the National Enquirer might have some locked away in a <laughs> vault somewhere. But the point is, we know that Jesus spoke in Aramaic. And what's that word in Aramaic? Right. In Aramaic, it's a different situation. We don't have a masculine and feminine form of that word. So when Jesus said it, Jesus said, you are Kepha, or Cephas, which is the Greek transliteration of Kepha. But the Aramaic word for rock is Kepha. Mm -hmm. And so what Jesus was saying to Peter was, you are Kepha. And upon this Kepha, I will build my church. So there was no distinguishing between large rock and little rock. So there's no confusion there. Right. The only confusion is then what did the Greek translators who took Jesus' Aramaic words and wrote them down in Greek, what did those Greek translators then have to do? Could they give Peter a feminine name? 
No. Well, he's a man, so it would be inappropriate for you to name him Petra. So right. Jesus would never say, you are Petra, and upon this Petra. He had to say, you are Petros, which is the masculine form. You're a man, so you get a masculine name. And upon this rock. So it's, he is saying, you are a rock, and upon this rock, I will build my church. You know, speaking of rock, what was the setting like when he spoke to Peter? Well, we're in Caesarea Philippi. Right. Caesarea Philippi is um, located 25 miles northeast of the Sea of Galilee. And it's at the base of this huge edifice, Mount Hermon. Now, Mount Hermon is this 100-foot-tall, 500-foot-long rock. And this is the dramatic background the backdrop. for Jesus making this statement about Peter. Right. And what's so interesting is if you know from Scripture that Jesus frequently uses these visual metaphors mm-hmm. to, re, to, to reinforce his points. Mm-hmm. In fact, if you remember, he's at the Sea of Galilee. He's talking about being fishers of men. When he's in the fields, he's talking about sowing seeds. And so here, he's it's appropriate where you can see this huge rock. And now he's talking about the rock of Peter being the foundation for the church. Mm-hmm. So this is a dramatic uh, moment. For not only for Peter, but for the entire church that yeah. was to be. Yeah, I just think that's a neat, you know, you don't hear a lot about that. I, I think that's a neat, neat thing to understand. Now, for some people, that may not be enough information. They may want to know more. They want to say, well, where else in Scripture do we get this idea that Peter's a rock? Right. I hope I've explained the Petros Petra thing, but let's go to another source in Scripture and find out what, what Jesus was saying and to whom he was saying it. Okay. Let's go to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 3 through 5. And, of course, Paul is writing to the Corinthians. I think Paul would be a good source in Scripture, don't you? I think Paul would be excellent. Let's see what Paul says. He says, For I deliver to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Notice here he doesn't say Simon. Mm-hmm. He also doesn't say Petros. Right. He says Cephas, which mm-hmm. is the Greek transliteration of the rock. Kepha. Right. Paul is calling Peter Kepha. Right. Using the Aramaic. So we know that he's quoting the same thing that, that Jesus says. You know, Jesus says in John chapter 1, verse 42, Jesus also uses uh, Kepha again, actually says Cephas. Jesus looked at him and said... So you are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. Now, this is the beginning of the Gospel of John. But again, we see Peter being called Kepha Mm -hmm. in Aramaic. And so, undoubtedly, Paul agrees with Jesus Mm -hmm. that Peter is the rock. Not Peter's faith, not his confession, not the church, not even Jesus. Jesus is not referring to himself as the rock here. Jesus is calling Peter the rock. Mm -hmm. Now, we don't want to stop there. There's so much more to talk about here. And we need to get to this part about the keys. There's so much packed into Matthew uh, chapter 16, verses 18 and 19. Right. But before we do that, we've got to go to a little break here. Okay. Uh, And uh, before we go to the break, I do want to remind folks that they can visit us on the web at www.thecatholiccafe.com. 
Um, there's so much stuff to do there at the website. Lots of people have been visiting this website. We think that's great. We want some more. So please visit when you can. There's lots more to learn about the Catholic Church. We've got lots of links there. You can download the shows that we've recorded, past and the current shows. You can also sign up for podcasting. And then also I encourage you to email me with any kind of questions or suggestions for show topics, etc. Email me at deaconjeff at thecatholiccafe.com. And so with that, thou shalt not turn that dial. We'll be right back. I'm Bess Drzymski, and this is another great moment in church history. Was St. Peter ever in Rome? This is a question that has caused a great deal of discussion in recent years. In fact, many detractors of the Catholic Church maintain the view that Peter never set foot in Rome, let alone became the first Catholic Pope. It has been well documented that many of the ancient churches of the world have been built on sites made holy by what took place there. The burial, martyrdom, or birth of one saint or another, a famous occurrence in biblical history, an apparition of Mary, or some other great noteworthy event. Pilgrims regularly traveled, and continue to travel, great distances to give honor to the saint or holy occurrence. Often, a church would be constructed to mark the spot where the blessed event took place, and provide a site dedicated to praise and worship to God in thanksgiving. St. Peter's Basilica at the Vatican is no exception. Church tradition has long held that this well-known and oft-visited center of Catholic worship was built upon the final resting place of the beloved St. Peter, first Bishop of Rome. Peter was, in fact, there. And many, many writings of the early church attest to this fact. For example, in 189 AD, St. Irenaeus wrote about the successions of the bishops of the greatest and most ancient church known to all, founded and organized at Rome by the two most glorious apostles, Peter and Paul. An ancient historian, Eusebius, wrote in 303 AD, the apostle Peter, after he had established the church in Antioch, was sent to Rome, where he remained bishop of that city, preaching the gospel for 25 years. The church has never required more than faith based on the solid foundation of tradition, but the same cannot be said for a doubting world. But the question of Peter and Rome came crashing to the fore once again in 1941, when during an archeological excavation deep beneath the high altar of St. Peter's Basilica, a monument with a red plaster wall was discovered. Hidden within the graffiti covered wall in a small marble lined repository were a collection of bones wrapped in a royal purple cloth. A large piece of the red wall had an inscription that read simply, Petros Aeni, or Peter is here. While this is not irrefutable scientific proof that will satisfy all the skeptics, it certainly bolsters the church's claim that the burial spot of St. Peter does lie beneath the high altar, and that Peter is here, in Rome that is. I'm Vestrozimski, and this is another great moment in church history. Welcome back to the Catholic Cafe. Here's Deacon Jeff. 
And we're back once again in the luxurious corner booth of the Catholic Cafe. I'm still here with Tom, and we're still talking about the Pope. Good stuff. Yeah, in fact, I've still got a little pie left here on my face. You You know, speaking of your pie, I meant to tell you that our waitress, Maggie was upset that we didn't mention her name at the beginning of the show. Well, She's we doing don't. a great job, and, you know, I think anytime somebody brings you three pieces of pie, they're hustling, man, because <laughs> those are big pieces of pie. Thank you, Maggie. We appreciate yes. your service. Absolutely. And thank you, Tom, for pointing out my eating problems. That's okay. So let's pick up where we left off. Yes, sir. So we were just discussing, of obviously, Matthew chapter 16, verses 18 and 19, and we hear Jesus... Talking about this binding and loosing is what's mentioned there. Loosing. That's right. The binding and the loosing. And that, of course. Is it loosing or loosening? Just loosing. Binding okay. and loosing. And the binding and I'm loosing. The binding and loosing is. Um, it's authority. Yes. He's, he's giving him authority. He gives Peter this authority. Now, at the same time, he gives all the other apostles, the other 12, he gives the apostles that same binding and loosing authority, if you recall. At that moment? No. This is later he does in that Scripture. Later That's right. At Pentecost. Well, actually, it's in the upper room sometime before Pentecost, but very nice try, Tom. Thank you. However, what he doesn't give the other apostles, the keys. Big, important stuff. That's right. And so that's the difference. And so what we need to do is we need to focus in on what does that mean? What do the keys here signify? And what could Jesus have me- meant by giving him the keys to the kingdom of heaven? Now, the interesting thing to note here, and I think everyone will agree that of all the scripture scholars in the world that have ever existed, Jesus is probably one of the top ten, I'm thinking. <laughs> Don't you agree? You think? <laughs> yeah, I think so. No, seriously, Jesus he, he knew what he was doing. That. <laughs> well, you know, all good Jews, they've been raised on Scripture. They've right. been raised on the Old Testament. They knew the prophets. They knew the first five books of the Bible, the Torah, the Pentateuch. They knew all this stuff. This is what the way they were raised. Even, they've heard these Even words. these lowly fishermen are going to know about all this. They'll all know to a certain degree. Seriously? They'll all know to a certain degree basic parts of those Scriptures because okay. they're read to them. Every time they go to service, they're reading those. So when he's referencing back, you know, to the Old Testament, he's there. There are light bulbs going off. That's with these exactly guys. right because God revealed Himself to the chosen people, to the Jews, and He did it through these scriptures, through the prophets, through the years, and so they've been raised on this, and that's where they got their ideas of what to expect as far as the Messiah was concerned. And one of those primary places they got that information was out of Isaiah. And so we have to look at what Jesus was saying and, believe it or not, what he was saying was tied directly to a passage in Isaiah that we're going to bring up. And this is in Isaiah chapter 22, verses 15 through 25. So keep your finger in Matthew Mm -hmm. chapter 16, Mm -hmm. and let's flip back to Isaiah chapter 22 because you're going to see the connection here. Okay. And not just the Catholic Church, but many Bible scholars understand that there is this connection. So let's see what's going on in this particular piece of Scripture. Thus says the Lord God of hosts, Come, go to this steward, to Shebna, who is over the household. Now I'll stop along the way as we read this to sort of help us to understand what's going on here. Shebna is, uh, is a steward. Uh, over the household. And this is the most powerful man in the realm, you know, apart from the king himself. He has a lot of authority here. So Shebna is an important man. Okay. All right, go to Shebna and say to him, 
What have you to do here? And whom have you here? That you have hewn here a tomb for yourself, you who hew a tomb on the height, and carve a habitation for yourself on the rock. Behold, the Lord will hurl you away violently, O you strong man. He will seize firm hold on you, and whirl you round and round, and throw you like a ball into a wide land. There you shall die, and there shall be your splendid chariots, you shame of your master's house. So obviously... Shebna is abusing his authority. That's exactly right. Shebna is abusing his authority. Right. He probably got a little haughty. Mm-hmm. He's building himself a fancy tomb. God doesn't like it. Right. So God wants him out of the house. Right. So he's taking away his authority. And now follow along here. God says, I will thrust you from your office and you will be cast down from your station. Notice he's calling what Shebna has, this steward, this guardian of the household, He's calling it an office. right? And what is an office? Office is something that's going to be filled. It's something that when Shebna's gone, someone else has got to come into the office. If you have a job and you've got a desk and you've got a little calculator and you've got a little phone <laughs> and you get your walking papers, well, guess what? Somebody's going to fill that seat. You're not taking your phone and your calculator. You're leaving it there because the next guy that comes and fills that seat mm-hmm. is going to take over where you left off. In that day I will call my servant Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah, and I will clothe him with your robe, and will bind your girdle on him, and will commit your authority to his hand. So God's kicking out Shebna, and he's bringing in Eliakim. And what is he doing? He's clothing him with your robe, and binding your girdle, Shebna's girdle. This is a sign of of Jewish authority here. Mm -hmm. He's giving his authority, and he says it specifically, and will commit your authority to his hand. He's giving his authority to Eliakim. Mm -hmm. So, and he shall be a father to the inhabitants of Jerusalem and to the house of Judah. So he's basically going to take over. He's going to take over as the master of the house. Mm -hmm. And I will place on his shoulder, here it comes, the key of the house of David. He shall open... And none shall shut, and he shall shut, and none shall open. So key or keys in the Jewish tradition was a big, big thing. Exactly right. Jesus is tying these keys. Of course, Jesus is referring to opening and shutting is, is also referring to the binding and the loosing that we hear later. But he's giving this key of the house of David. That same key is what's been given to Peter, mm-hmm. the keys to the kingdom of heaven. So Peter is, is, is being compared here to Eliakim. Mm-hmm. So everything that Eliakim gets, Peter gets. And let's read on. And I will fasten him like a peg. This is Eliakim we're talking about. And I will fasten him like a peg in a sure place. And he will become a throne of honor to his father's house. And they will hang on him the whole weight of his father's house, the offspring and issue, every small vessel from the cups to all the flagons. In other words, everything is going to hang on Eliakim. And so what Jesus is saying is everything is going to hang on Peter. Everything is going to be committed to Peter's authority. He's saying that this church, the full authority and weight of Christ behind it, is going to be given to Peter to rule over as master of the house. Wouldn't you love to have been one of the disciples there when that took place, just to see their faces and, and, and for them to realize what was taking place? 
Listen, I'd I mean, love to have been. Be, that had to be just. I would love to have been a, a Middle Eastern fly and, oh, uh, yeah. you know, uh, flee or whatever. And to be able to sit and watch the light bulbs go on. Because they're, they're realizing what he's what he's. They're seeing and, this connection. Yeah. yeah. They're seeing this connection. Now, an interesting thing comes up here. You know, again, when I was saying that Peter is going to be treated now like Eliakim was treated then. So everything that, that Eliakim got, Peter gets. Let's look at what. Eliakim got, okay? He got uh, Shebna's office, so Peter gets an office, Mm -hmm. okay? And Eliakim gets Shebna's robe, Mm -hmm. his girdle. Mm -hmm. He gets his authority. Mm -hmm. So Peter gets a robe, girdle, and authority over the church. Right. Okay? And here's the most important thing. This next line is really important because, you know, I had one uh, friend of mine who said, you know, I kind of understand what you're talking about with this pope, but my problem is the word pope is nowhere in Scripture. You call this man a pope. I now I see bishops. <laughs> I see deacons. I'll even give you the presbyters, but I don't see the word pope. How do you get pope out of all this? Stuff? Good point. Good question. Well, and so we look at Scripture, and right here in Isaiah chapter 22, we see the word pope. Now, a lot of people say, I didn't hear you say pope. You yeah. read the whole thing. You didn't say pope. Right. But what is the Italian word for Pope? For Pope. Uh, Papa. Papa. It's Papa. Okay. Right? That's where we get the word Pope from. We're in Rome, right? We're at St. Peter's. We're speaking Italian. We say, Viva il Papa, long live the Pope. They do that? They do that to this day. We really? did that when I was visiting. So Papa hmm. means Pope. That's where we get the word from. Mm-hmm. What is a Papa? Papa is a father. Right. And so here... God is telling Eliakim that he will be a father. He will be a papa. He will be the pope of the inhabitants of Jerusalem. Fast forward to Peter. When Peter gets these keys, Jesus is saying to Peter, you will be the papa. You're going to be the pope. And hence, we as Catholics get this understanding that Peter is the first pope. That that is great stuff. There is so much more that we could talk about here, though. Sounds like we need another show, Deacon Jeff. We do need another show, and so I think people have more questions. And speaking of questions, I'd love for you to email me some of these questions. If this particular show has caused you to think of a question that you think will be a host stumper <laughs> or a Tom stumper. Yeah, well, that would be easy to do. <laughs> if you want to send us a question and find out more about what Catholics teach and believe, please do so at Deacon Jeff at the thecatholiccafe.com. Tom, I've really enjoyed taking this opportunity to help explain just a little bit more about what Catholics believe about the papacy. So what we want to do is we want to go ahead and close in prayer. Heavenly Father, your son founded a church so that through the ministry of the church, we might receive all the graces we could ever need for daily life. Help us to follow the way you have laid out for us, for we know that this way will lead us directly to you. We ask you to grant this through our Lord Jesus Christ, your Son, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God forever and ever. Amen. Thanks for listening to The Catholic Cafe. If you'd like to contact Deacon Jeff, send an email to deaconjeff at thecatholiccafe.com. The Catholic Cafe is brought to you by the Order of Malta Federal Association and is broadcast with ecclesial permission from J. Terry Stive, Bishop of Memphis in Tennessee. Join us again at the Catholic Cafe. 
there's always room for one more at our table. <laughs> 